Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hi, this is Pardon Me. This is Colin McEnroe. It's been a week, right? I mean, first of all, an actual impeachment happened, only the third one in American history. So there was that. And then also, of course, President Trump wrote a nutty letter on the eve of the impeachment to Speaker Pelosi. He also claimed in a speech that uh, former Congressman John Dingell might be in hell. (laughs) So, you know, just the usual week in America. So we're going to do a show about all of that and so much more. John Harris, one of the founders of Politico, will be with us. Historian Joanne Freeman and AccuFrankie. Frankie Graziano is going to go out to the local Target and talk to some regular human beings. Oh, yeah. And Al Anderson, Nikita Waller, and some other folks are going to do a song that sums up this moment. On this vote, the yeas are 230, the nays are 197, present is 1, Article 1 is adopted. On this vote, the yeas are 229, the nays are 198, present is 1, Article 2 is adopted. Welcome to Pardon Me, another damn impeachment show. I'm Colin McEnroe, your host. This is our third full episode. Later in the show today, you'll be hearing from Yale historian Joanne Freeman, who always has kind of terrific things to say in terms of sort of mapping out framer intent onto a present situation. A lot of things we're going to be talking about there. You'll also later in the show hear Frankie Graziano out in a parking lot at a Target talking to the proverbial regular folks. We're also going to give you a song because we feel like you're going to need a song. Uh, I think it's going to be sung by Nikita Waller here in our studios. That is all to come, but we are proud and happy to begin today with John Harris, co-founder and editor-in-chief for Politico magazine. He wrote a piece for Politico uh, asking, what if Trump weren't nuts? And also wrote one called Trump Killed the Seriousness of Impeachment. And there's a lot to talk about here. So in an act of pure prescience, you wrote the what if Trump weren't nuts piece like before the impeachment eve cuckoo letter to Nancy Pelosi, before yesterday's suggestion, I'm talking on Thursday, I should probably admit that, yesterday's suggestion that John Dingell might be in hell looking up at life on earth. I mean, in a way, I guess you could sort of pick any week or any couple of yeah, weeks. I don't uh, really claim much precedent. <laughs> I was acting on a, a, an abundant record um, even before yesterday. Right. So I thought the point of your piece was really interesting. It kind of reminded me of a speech that Brooks gives in the movie Broadcast News, where he talks about the slick anchor Tom, who was played by William Hurt. Don't get me wrong when I tell you that Tom, while being a very nice guy, is the devil. This isn't friendship. You're crazy, you know that? What do you think the devil's going to look like if he's around? God. Come on, no one's going to be taken in by a guy with a long red pointy tail. Come on, 
on, what's he gonna sound like? <sighs> no. I'm semi-serious here. You're serious. He will be attractive. He'll be nice and helpful. He'll get a job where he influences a great God-fearing nation. He'll never do an evil thing. He'll never deliberately hurt a living thing. He'll just bit by little bit lower our standards where they're important. And that, in a way, is in both of your pieces, one of the things that's happening. We are accepting with increasing frequency stuff that's abnormal as normal. I would say that that's a result of a convergence of factors that go deep in our politics and our culture. And President Trump is probably a very vivid expression of those, and he's a vessel for those changes. And to some extent, he's a cause of those changes, but he's not the sole cause. Do you think there was a general kind of deterioration of norms that preceded Trump? Yes, I do. Hmm. I think that the incentives in both politics and media for more extreme behavior, rewards for people who move away from the center, not just the ideological center, the partisan center, but kind of the center of discourse, in which uh, we might think somebody's wrong, but we don't think they're bad. And the point of politics is to try to come up with solutions. That was the old center. It's largely collapsed in our politics today. And now the incentives, publicity, money, social media followers go for extreme behavior that isn't necessarily aimed at solving a problem. It's aimed at kind of motivating your side and also reaping those rather lavish rewards for extreme behavior. Anyway, maybe we're getting far afield from Trump, but I do think that's the context in which Trump blossomed. He was the perfect expression of that. I think the other context, Colin, is that we've had for really 50 years a decline in respect for institutions. Increasingly, people mistrust them and uh, or regard them with contempt. And that goes to sort of that lost solemnity you mentioned and that we talked about. It's impeachment, but really it's just another day in Washington. Right. I mean, it used to be that impeachment, being involved in impeachment was a, sort of like being the groom. It would be something you only did a couple of times in your lifetime. Now it's starting to seem like yeah. it, it, it might be happening a little bit. We're all going to be Elizabeth Taylor. So I just want to focus a little bit on one of the points you made, because it's one I haven't seen other people make. One of the arguments of the first that first piece, what if Trump weren't not is that, you know, if he didn't do things like, well, just to remind you, let's let's hear from the, the Dingle thing from, from Wednesday. If he didn't do things like this. Debbie Dingle, that's a real beauty. So she calls me up like eight months ago. Her husband was here a long time. But I didn't give him the B treatment. I didn't give him the C or the D. I could have. Nobody would have, you know. I gave the A-plus treatment. Take down the flags. She calls me up. It's the nicest thing that's ever happened. Thank you so much. John would be so thrilled. He's looking down, he'd be so thrilled. Thank you so much, sir. I said, that's okay, don't worry about it. Maybe he's looking up, I don't know. You know, I just thought we should play a clip just in case anybody has forgotten in the last 20 minutes how this guy acts. But one of your arguments is that if he didn't do things like that, if he weren't so dismissible by one portion of the population, if he weren't the kind of person who by his behavior probably can't get too much higher than bouncing around between 38 and 43 in his approval ratings, that he'd be he'd be a much more effective guy. And in a way, he'd be a much more intimidating force in American public life. Well, the point of that article I wrote, what if Trump wasn't nuts, it was, yeah, it was a little bit of a parlor game, really. If he were able to modulate his behavior, he, I think, would be a commanding figure right now, not just 
with his supporters who he's kept intact, but I really think he'd be looking at a more like a 55% approval rating. He'd be in great shape for reelection. Of course, if he wasn't somewhat nuts, and I'm using that in a colloquial way, I'm not actually a qualified to make a diagnosis on his uh, mental state. But people know what I mean. If he weren't so unconventional, if he, if he weren't rude, if he didn't uh, shatter all kinds of norms, he never would have been president in the first place. If he had the ability to control that, the reasons <laughs> I think he'd be in such commanding shape would be, one, fantastic economy. Two, his ideas, and we forget this in the middle of impeachment, his ideas on subjects like China, on trade, on uh, pulling back from endless wars, on spending, they're really driving the debate in both parties. So he'd be an enormously consequential president. And of course, if he had discipline and self-restraint, he wouldn't be in the middle of this Ukraine debacle. So the point is to ask that question by way of highlighting some real assets that President Trump has. In the sense, though, Trump is who he is, and he's long since demonstrated that he doesn't have that self-restraint. So it's a little like asking, well, what if nuclear bombs existed in the Civil War? Yes, it would be quite different, but that wasn't the case, and there's not really much merit in pondering it for long. Well, it's also, I think, the case that, you know, when we think around the world at these kinds of leaders who come in and defy existing norms, but also institute often these rather punitive policy sets, they tend to be guys like Trump, Berlusconi, Boris Johnson. In other words, one thing kind of goes with the other a little bit, I think. You know, you just come in pretty unconventionally and you say that you're not going to play nice and you're not going to bow to existing traditions and conventions and you're going to be your checkered self. You've already got a pretty extensive uh, rap sheet in your past. Uh, And, you know, I mean, I, I just wonder if you can even untangle one type of leader from those kinds of foibles. You're right, and that uh, several countries have uh, turned in this kind of angry moment around many places in the globe, not just in the United States, to these presidents who express through their behavior the contempt that they feel toward established institutions, the fear that they feel of change that's out of control or is coming at their expense. I think Trump has taken those stylistic traits, but also harnessed them to a policy agenda, which you have to take seriously because it has had consequences in both parties. The thinking is not the same as it was a decade ago on globalization, on free trade, on China. So Trump's the leader of a movement through his behavior. He's really risks endangering that movement and really limiting his influence. Right. So just because we have you here and because things that have happened have happened, you know, you talked at the beginning about how yeah, you think there's been in recent decades a breakdown of some of the norms, maybe even some of the capacity for conciliation and negotiation that might have previously existed in Washington. So, yeah, even prior to Trump, you've got Mitch McConnell just refusing to allow the Merrick Garland nomination yeah. to go forward. That would have been unheard of in an earlier Yeah. Year. And so... You know, now it's going to show up in this process. So suddenly we have Mitch McConnell rather bizarrely saying that he would coordinate this, the behavior of the Senate majority in, in an impeachment trial with the White House. You've got Schumer making a counterproposal. And then just within the last few hours of the time that we're talking, the news that Nancy Pelosi is now considering holding the articles and using that as a bargaining chip to see if she could get McConnell to budge a little bit on some of his minimalist thinking about a Senate trial. Some of that seems like an expression. I mean, there there aren't even 
accepted procedures that everybody agrees we're going to follow. Instead, it's one big bargaining session. That's right. The big question of American politics, it seems to be always be, which side are you on? Are you with us or them? Are you with the shirts or the skins? There's almost no issue that doesn't transcend that kind of polarization and that sort of partisanship. And in fact, I think there is no issue because impeachment under ordinary circumstances, this was true back in the Nixon era, it was something in which people looked at their institutional responsibilities and their constitutional responsibilities and put those far above their partisan feelings. We're not seeing that in this impeachment, and it's a, it's a reflection of the times. Right. And you wonder, though, ultimately, how this plays with different aspects of the political base. And, and certainly, you know, to a lot of people, the kind of people who are intrigued by or even attracted to a figure like Trump, this idea of an existing set of rules and norms that are worth understanding and following is probably not, it probably doesn't play all that well, you know? I mean, it sounds to them maybe like a bunch of way-faced, you know, career political hacks who have their own ideas, and they elected this guy to go in and smash everything in Pottery Barn. I wouldn't imagine that they care very much about the conversation you and I are having right now. Well, his partisans like Trump precisely because he's contemptuous of those norms, I completely agree with you. Many people have commented that the outcome of the Senate trial doesn't seem much in doubt, and that certainly seems true to me. But the larger outcome of what this does to Trump's politics, what it does for the reelection, what it does to this movement that he led, I think that is, there is quite a lot of suspense about that. I'm out here in Los Angeles for the Democratic debate tonight, Thursday. And I bumped into Bob Shrum, a longtime Democratic operative, who was out here in Los Angeles. And he made, a, I think, a valid point, which is we didn't really learn about the long-term consequences of the Clinton impeachment until 2000. He was advising Al Gore that year. And he said, look, we had a real headwind, not because people uh, wanted Clinton thrown from office, but because they were exhausted by all the drama and conflict which swirled around Bill Clinton. And it was a headwind for Al Gore. Trump may... Uh, almost certainly will be acquitted in the Senate trial. And Democrats in some districts in the House may uh, pay a price for impeachment if it's unpopular there. But that doesn't mean that Trump himself won't pay probably a very high price 10 months from now in the re-election campaign, where people, perhaps even some supporters, will say, you know what, I was with Trump because I liked, I wanted him to shake up Washington, but I find him exhausting now. Whatever Trump was elected for, he did. And now it's time for something else. I I think the price of impeachment could be high, even as President Trump is almost certainly acquitted. You know, it's funny that you say that you're in Los Angeles and you had that conversation with Shrum. I remember standing on the floor of the Staples Center in 2000 when at the Democratic National Convention, Clinton came and gave his speech. And, you know, he goes out there with no teleprompter and he just freaking kills it. You know, I mean, he had that ability to make you really glad you were standing there listening to him talk. And I, I, I was happened to be standing on the floor in between Congressman John Larson and former Congressman Toby Moffat. And one of them leaned across me and said to the other one, tell me again why we're not using this guy during the campaign? Because it was just seemed so clear that Clinton had that incredible skill set, a skill set yeah. that Gore didn't really have. But to your point, or to Shrum's point, Ultimately, George W. Bush ran a kind of restorationist campaign, right? He basically said, I'm going to... That is right. He's been arguing this for 20 years. He said, look, I have the data. Yes, Bill Clinton was popular with certain Democrats. We could not bring him into swing states because people were so tired 
of the Clinton drama, and they wanted to move on. It wasn't just making up that we couldn't use Clinton as much as we otherwise would have. It was all there in the data. And Bob predicted that this will be a factor for President Trump, that, you know what, we're, the country is exhausted. We need something different. So I thought it was an interesting point. Yeah, it's a great point. John Harris, the co-founder and editor-in-chief for Politico magazine. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks so much. So let's take a break. And after that break, we're going to talk to one of our favorite historians, Joanne Freeman from Yale, who specializes in looking at what those nutty framers were doing when they put impeachment in the Constitution. Welcome back. This is Pardon Me. I'm Colin McEnroe. This is a weekly show we do for as long as the quote-unquote impeachment season lasts. You know, all the way through this process, we talk a lot about the president, about the nuts and bolts of what's happening right now, about how the politics are playing out. We also talk about history. So let's talk some more about history with people who actually know history. I'm thinking in particular of Joanne Freeman, whose greatest accomplishment, I believe, is that she is Hartford Mayor Luke Bronin's favorite professor of all time. But I'm sure there's other things on her resume besides that. Yes, professor of history and American studies at Yale University. Her most recent book is The Field of Blood, Congressional Violence in Antebellum America. She's co-host of the podcast Backstory. So first of all, welcome back to our show, Joanne Freeman. Oh, thanks for having me. One of the things, and I know that you've commented, on this already. One of the things that those of us who watch government are always a little bit surprised by in the rare instances where we get into an impeachment process is that it's a little less clear to everybody, to the people who are actually pulling the levers and turning the dials, exactly which levers they're supposed to pull and which dials they're supposed to turn. The people who have to do impeachment generally speaking, have never done impeachment. Right. And so part of me as a historian thinks, ah, isn't this interesting, right? It's a constitutional process. We've only done it a couple of times before. It's very basically laid out, outlined in the Constitution. And now we're watching people improvise to figure out the best, fairest, and most responsible way, or ideally that's what they're doing, to figure out how to conduct an impeachment. So I love that as a historian who studies the founding period because the founding period is just one big moment of improvisation. So to me, I think watching this, wow, this is what it feels like to watch improvisation in government. We don't see it in this kind of fundamental structural way very often. On the other hand, non-historian Joanne <laughs> thinks, wow, is there a lot of room <laughs> for wiggle room in this? And some of that wiggling could go in a bad direction. Right. So let's talk about some of that wiggle room and let's go back there to that moment. So you got 55 white guys, 54 Protestants, one Catholic meeting in secret and day drinking. What could go wrong? <laughs> um, and so, you know, one of the things that could either go wrong or is part of their intent, let's just pause on this whole question 
question, speaking of wiggle room, of the murkiness of high crimes and misdemeanors, what appears to be a certain lack of perfect clarity about does this process map onto criminal jurisprudence? No, not really. So what does it map onto? Do they want it to be that hard to understand, or did they think everybody would just get it? Well, if you think in a slightly broader context about the Constitution as a whole, it's a remarkably brief document (laughs) considering what it does. It's really an outline of a government, and that holds just as true for impeachment as for anything else. The other thing to bear in mind is that the people who were composing, creating the Constitution hoped, didn't assume, but hoped that it would last at least a reasonable amount of time into the future. So they had to be specific enough for it to matter, but not so specific that it might rule itself out of relevance. And in the case of impeachment and the qualifications for it, treason and bribery are pretty clear. High crimes and misdemeanors is not. What's interesting about that is what preceded that. So when they were debating how to describe these crimes, one of the early things that came up was, and this is their word, maladministration. And they debated that and they actually said, well, maladministration, couldn't couldn't anyone from one partisan view just claim that someone from the other view just wasn't administering policy right? Like, that's that's too broad. Let's be more specific. And that's where other high crimes and misdemeanors came in. They assumed, I think, that it would communicate the seriousness of impeachment, but that it would allow itself to be able to be adapted to circumstance with the underlying assumption that it's only to be used in cases of real serious offense. Right. So uh, the other thing that we have are commentaries that are not in the Constitution, but written by some of the people very close to the process, including a guy who gets mentioned a lot these days. Let's actually listen to Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader in the House, talking about that particular guy. This is the day that Alexander Hamilton feared and warned would come. This is the day the nation is weaker because they sheerly cannot put their animosity or their fear of losing an election in the future in front of all the other things that the American people want. It's not a day that history will be proud of. It's not a day I hope America ever repeats. So Hamilton does write about impeachment, right? So he writes about everything. We know that from the play. Um, Alexander joins forces with James Madison and John Jay to write a series of essays defending the new United States Constitution entitled The Federalist Papers. The plan was to write a total of 25 essays, the work divided evenly among the three men. In the end, they wrote 85 essays in the span of six months. John Jay got sick after writing five. James Madison wrote 29. Hamilton wrote the other 51. How do you write like you're running out of time? Write day and night like you're running out of time. Every day you fight like you're running out of time. Like you're running out of time. Are you running out of time? How do you write like tomorrow won't arrive? And so what does he tell us? He does, I think, pretty much make it clear that it isn't any kind of precise relationship with ordinary criminal justice or anything like that. This really is something different, something that might encompass, for example, abuse of office. Well, that particular version of Hamilton, that's being tossed around a lot. And that isn't really accurate to what And this comes from Federalist 65, from Mm. what the Federalist says. What Hamilton says there is, on the one hand, yes, just as was claimed, impeachment is going to be highly partisan. It's a dangerous thing. It's something really to think about before you commence. 
he's explaining that in an essay defending the Constitution with impeachment in it. Mm. So he then goes on to explain why the process of impeachment is important. That yes, despite everything that he just said, if you give a single person, the national executive, a lot of power, there has to be a way to rein him in, to check him. And certainly that generation was very aware of the problem of arbitrary power. And impeachment to them was the most logical, most process-bound way to do that. So Hamilton isn't saying, I warned you this day would come. How dare you use an impeachment? He's saying, this is going to be bad when this day comes. And when it does come, we're at least laying out for you some kind of a process that you can use as a starting point. Right. So let's talk a little bit about that process, too. So, you know, one of the things that drives me a little bit crazy is when people who are opposed to this impeachment, who are Trump supporters, say it's a coup. Well, it's the opposite of a coup, right? It's one of the reasons they write this whole thing in here is so we won't have coups. There are many things bounced around right now that make my head want to explode, and that's one, that this is a coup. This is a constitutional process. A coup is to shred and destroy the foundation of government, to use force, military force even, to take over. So it just doesn't apply in this case at all. And the idea that not only is it a coup, but somehow it's overturning an election, which is the proof that it's a coup, that doesn't work either. If you think about it, the process of impeachment is brought to you by the same people who designed our electoral process. <laughs> they put both of those processes in the Constitution and believed that they were both necessary. So some of the talking points that are bouncing around out there today, they're not very accurate. So the other thing that we can intuit from looking at the process, they want it to be a fairly complex process. Uh, it's not an easy bar to clear, particularly the two-thirds of the Senate for the actual removal of the president. They want the powers divided not just among the three branches, but in this case, sharply divided within the legislative branch. Do we know any more specifics about how they were thinking about that? Well, just as you say, part of the reason why they demand that two-thirds of the Senate vote to actually remove a president is precisely what you just suggested. This isn't something that's meant to be easy. It's something that there should be some kind of consensus about, however we define that. So that's one way in which, as you just put it, they create a high bar. They also give the process to the people's branch because by what they're doing makes perfect sense in our mode of governance. They're saying that the American people, through their representatives, are going to be part of this process and essentially engaged in making the decision. The other thing to bear in mind about impeachment and all the complexities is that part of the logic for having it, the very fact that impeachment existed in the Constitution, in the minds of many of the people who were writing the Constitution, seemed likely to be the sort of threat that might keep a president from misbehaving. A president wouldn't want to be publicly humiliated, even if he wasn't removed, he wouldn't want to have to go through the process of impeachment. And to avoid that, he might think twice before doing something improper. So another thing that we know about that time is that some of the conversations we're having now would be a little bit familiar to them when it comes to the interference of foreign powers. So with a government that's just being invented, with a nation that's just coming into being, you feel still as though you are surrounded at that time by better established countries, better established powers that might want to affect your independence, your hard-won, recently won independence. So they are thinking about this. Absolutely. They're thinking about it in regard to impeachment, and they're thinking about it 
pretty much throughout the 1790s. The United States at this point in its first decade was little tiny newborn country with no no oomph, no power. And they're surrounded by empires, right? The British Empire, France, Spain, these are, are mighty nations with big armies and navies. So on the one hand, the United States was all too aware that it couldn't compete with those nations. On top of that, and more important than that, they certainly assumed that it would be all too easy for one of these foreign nations to corrupt or entice a president into basically surrendering the nation to that country. And this is part of what they were doing to prevent that from happening. And as crazy as that might sound, they worried about that in a very specific way in that period. A great example is the presidential election of 1796. There was a lot of fear that somehow or other that France was going to steal that election, that he was wooing people or talking to people and maybe Thomas Jefferson had something to do with it. And there was a lot of talk about foreign influence and foreign interference in our presidential electoral process. So that's not a new concern. Just as you say, it goes all the way back to the federal convention. And it's a really logical fear, particularly in a Republican form of government in which people are voted in and voted out. Another thing that they're thinking about is the emergence of political parties, the whole idea of political parties doing what they're doing right now, which is kind of pursuing one set of goals and one set of loyalties to the exclusion of all else. That wasn't their favorite idea, was it? <laughs> no, it was not their favorite idea. They weren't stupidly naive, right? So they didn't walk around saying, we shall create a new country. There shall be no partisanship. What they didn't want was organized groups of people out to promote themselves. They understood that there would be partisanship. They understood that there would be extreme partisanship, that people would take sides, that there would be partisan bickering and, and maybe even worse. But it was the idea of an organized party that alarmed them because that seemed like rather than people thinking about the government as a whole and the people and nation as a whole, they were just thinking about themselves, which one might argue sometimes is an appropriate definition. But political parties in their mind were something that was to be avoided. And that's why when before the election, presidential election of 1800, you would have presidential elections in which whoever got the most votes would become president and whoever got the second most would become vice president regardless of their party. And in 1796, you end up with a Federalist president and a Republican vice president. They're just not planning on what we now take for granted about our system. The other thing, though, that does happen almost immediately, I mean, the country goes nuts. The Federalists and the Republicans, they really hate each other, and they hate each other on a real grassroots level. I mean, we're sitting here in Connecticut where we had the famous Connecticut libels and stuff like that. I mean, they're, they're really kind of tearing <laughs> into one another. It doesn't take long before that pretty binary divisiveness sets in. Well, right. So the presidential election of 1800, in a lot of ways, has some striking similarities to the present. The 1790s, to some degree, is partly about debating how democratic a republic America would be. The Federalists basically say less and the Republicans basically say more. Mm -hmm. And the election of 1800 ends up seeming to be the election where that's going to be decided. So you end up with part of the nation thinking that the other part of the nation is promoting something un-American, right? You Federalists are doing something that's un-American and vice versa. So you have people othering each other. You have political parties are splintering and people are sort of joining different groups in the anxiety of what's going to happen in that election. You have the threat of violence 
There were two states in which people were arming themselves because they didn't know what would come next. You have crazy conspiracy theories. You have there's a I believe it's a broadside, like a like an image or a cartoon that essentially says, bury your Bibles. Jefferson is coming and he's an atheist. All of this kind of crazy stuff going on, which in some ways in tone isn't unlike some of what we're experiencing right now. What's really interesting about that moment is what Thomas Jefferson says after it's done. And he, of course, is now happily president. But someone says to him in a letter, what would you have done if things had gone wrong? Like, what would you have done if we couldn't decide the election or, or worse? And he says, oh, well, we have processes for that. We would have had some kind of a convention. We would have fixed things up and we would have gone along, right? We would have immediately resorted to some kind of constitutional process to get ourselves back on track. That's the assumption under which these people were composing the Constitution. Right. And, uh, you know, they weren't entirely wrong about that. In a fractious situation where people are not getting along, and there was talk of secession at that time, too, Jefferson's kind of right that there's this idea that this nation is kind of more important than those things. Right. And that the Constitution offers guardrails, to use the metaphor that everyone is using these days, right? The wheels are coming off the bus. But let's cling to this thing we all basically agreed that we were going to be a nation under this thing and figure a way out of this problem using this common pact. I want to ask you about sort of one last thing in terms of what they were thinking about now and how it plays out today. You get the sense, looking at the way checks and balances are laid out in the Constitution, that there's a belief that the branch, the institutional identity of the branch, is going to become important, important enough so that Congress will see its role and its its perquisites as pretty distinct from those of the executive branch and distinct again from those of the judicial branch. So let's hear Mitch McConnell talking about how he sees the impeachment trial playing out in the Senate. We assume we're going to see two articles of impeachment, both of them pretty weak stuff. And everything I do during this, I'm coordinating with White House counsel. There will be no difference between the president's position and our position as to uh, how to handle this. So I'm assuming some of the framers would, go, would listen to that and go, you're going to do who with the what now? You're gonna, <laughs> what are you going to do? Well, yeah, it, certainly for the Senate leader to go on TV and announce essentially he's just going to do what the president wants. That's a rather dramatic step beyond we're cooperating with the president. That's a direct public statement of denial of what Congress is supposed to do in this kind of case. So yeah, that felt to me, it kind of stunned me that not only that it was said, but that it was said on TV. So let me just ask you one last question. I mean, you're a historian, and I've heard you say that, well, every day is history, really. Every day, a history is unfolding before us. I mean, this is like history on steroids, right? I'm just, <laughs> I'm kind of wondering what it's like for you watching this process, thinking about the books that will be written, the classes that will be taught in the future about this moment in 2019 and 2020. Oh, I talk about that all the time. As a matter of fact, I sometimes save documents or photographs or tweets because in my mind I think, oh, well, you know, 30 years from now when someone's writing about this, boy, are they going to want to see this. And when something dramatic happens, I'll, I'll even sort of jokingly tweet out, well, there is another 10 dissertations born right there. So as a historian, it is true that I'm watching the unfolding of this and I'm marveling at the fact that this is a, a moment of trial and decision in a way that doesn't often happen in America. And for that reason, and because the decision that's being made could have a profound influence on the nation, it's definitely got 
historical significance. And that's, as a historian, a very strange thing to feel because part of me is fascinated and part of me, just as an American, is very anxious. This will be a fascinating period to write about down the road. I think one of the stories that will be told that so far has really not been addressed is going to be the power of women uh, in all kinds of venues, protest, Congress, organizing, all kinds of things. I think women are going to are doing a lot of political work here that, as ever, is not being noticed. But there are countless other things that there will be to talk about as people review this pretty extraordinary moment. I think the other part of this, and I'm only occasionally a teacher, I'm not a legendary teacher like you, but you know, you can say to your students, you're part of this, you're living through this, your tweets and your and your and you know the little podcast you just started or something. This is it's all part of a historical narrative. It isn't all stuff that lies in books and archives and doesn't exist in reality. You're actually part of it. And sometimes I see students kind of go, oh yeah, that's kind of true, isn't it? That's how I closed one of my classes this semester. I taught an undergraduate seminar called The Age of Jefferson and Hamilton, taught entirely with their letters and writings. And all semester, the echoes of past and present were banging up against each other. And on the very last day, I didn't see how I could not say something. And so I said, you know, something along the lines of what you just said. It's tempting to look at the Constitution, at American history, at America, and to think to yourself, ah, it's all decided. But everything is contingent. Nothing is absolute not even us. And we're in a moment where we're looking at contingency. We're looking at decisions being made and the decisions matter and the things that my students think about it and ultimately choose to do about it or not to do about it matter too. Joanne Freeman, so great to talk to you. Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Most recent book is The Field of Blood, Congressional Violence in Antebellum America, the co-host of the podcast Backstory, which you should definitely start subscribing to. Thanks for joining us. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Okay, we're going to take a break, and then we're going to have at least one question from a listener, and then an expert answer to said question provided. Also, AccuFranchi. We'll explain AccuFranchi. But that'll be a segment with a man and woman on the street interviews, and we'll also have a song, because you need a song right now. This is Pardon Me. I'm your host, Colin McEnroe, and each week we try to get listener questions answered by experts. This week we have a question from John Barry, a former public school teacher, and an expert answer from, well, I mean, you don't get any more expert than Ross Garber, who has spent more time with his sleeves rolled up and his hands in the dirty dishwater of impeachment than any other human being alive. What norms may be shared widely enough in the Senate that might allow for a relatively level playing field for both sides to rigorously conduct their cases? So this question is really about the Senate trial process and what to expect. The Supreme Court has made clear that it is completely up to the Senate 
to decide on what its trial procedures are going to be, that that discretion is essentially unlimited and courts won't even get involved at all to oversee it. So it's totally up to the Senate. And the way it works is that the speaker will name what are called House managers, members of the House who will act as prosecutors, who will go to the Senate and prosecute the case. The president is also entitled to a defense, and he will be represented at least by his White House lawyers, and we expect also by private lawyers because there are both public and private interests at stake. And what the process looks like, again, is totally up to the Senate, and they're going to pass a set of rules. And right now, what the Senate majority is doing, in particular Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, They're looking to the Clinton rules as a baseline, and we're already seeing jockeying where the House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi, and some of the folks in her caucus, and the Senate leader, Chuck Schumer, and some of the folks in his Democratic caucus are saying that the Clinton rules weren't good enough and aren't good enough for this process, but I think that's going to be the baseline for what to expect. And in Clinton, the way it worked was uh, there were long, extensive opening arguments by both the Uh, House managers and by the president's lawyers. And after that, then the Senate decided, and it's by majority vote, whether witness testimony is necessary. And in the Clinton process, they decided that actually, no, they didn't need to bring any live witnesses at all in front of the Senate. They allowed three depositions of key players, including Monica Lewinsky, and those were held in private. And after that, Then the Senate decided they didn't need to bring those same people before the Senate to hear from them again. The lawyers were allowed to just make closing arguments and play some of the videotape from those depositions. And so that's that's the baseline. I think it is very unlikely because Senator McConnell has said as much that we're going to see live witnesses. And I think it's very unlikely we're going to see depositions in this case. It's probably going to be a pretty quick process, opening arguments and then closing arguments. But impeachments are rare. This is only the third time in the history of the country that we've had a presidential impeachment, so we could have some surprises. So let me just say on a personal basis, I mean, I started out as a journalist in 1976, and it turned out immediately that one of the things I'm not good at is getting just regular people to talk to me about regular stuff because I just don't, I apparently do not seem regular. So I seem like some, you know, cream puff, pencil neck, pointy headed, Ivy League jerk, you know, that people in Target parking lots just don't want to talk to. But some people are really good at it. And Frankie Graziano, a reporter here in our own newsroom, is about the best that I've ever seen. And so we're going to give you something right now that it's almost like its own little show that sits inside our show. It's almost like the Frankie Graziano show is nesting inside our show. We sent him out to talk to some regular people. And what we did initially was <laughs> – and this may be sort of my fault, like so many things are. But we gave – we wrote down three questions for him. And I think probably what happened is whoever was writing it down, and I happen to know who, just wrote down exactly what I said and including a swear word. OK. So then we sent him out to the Target parking lot and you're going to hear what it sounds like in a feature we call you Frankie. One, two, three, four, five. 
I'm at the Target in New Britain on Route 71. It's smack dab in the middle of the holiday season. So I figured people would be out here today. We'll see if they'll talk to us. All right, it's a yellow piece of paper. And on it, it says, What worries you the most about the impeachment at this point? Are you losing sleep? Do you not give a shit? Just got a text from McNichol that says, Don't say shit. No shit. Last time I'm saying shit. Hi, guys. I'm Frankie from Connecticut Public Radio. And today we're in this Target parking lot asking people three basic questions about the impeachment. Let me ask you the first question. What worries you the most about the impeachment? I feel that they're rushing it and that he's probably going to get off. Nothing. I think it has to be done because he's totally abused his power and he believes that he's flipping his finger at everything. I think um, that it's a waste of our money because I don't think it's going to happen. I voted for Trump, so. He's going to get away with it. I mean, the Senate is just going to throw it away and he'll continue doing his dirty deeds. I didn't like him when he was a New York businessman. I don't like him. I don't think he has the temperament to lead this country. He's never been held accountable. I lived in New York City, worked in New York City for many, many, many years. This is his pattern. This is his MO. And I'm sorry, I do believe that he has an allegiance to Russia. And that's not how we should be. I don't know. <laughs> it's something it sounds like you're not following because is it something you don't care about, would you say? Yeah, I'm... I really don't have a big interest of our president. I don't follow it, and if he gets impeached, that's fine by me. Are you losing sleep over this process? Impeachment, no. No? Oh, not at all. No. <laughs> He's already been in office for, you know, three. He only has a little bit, you know, time left, so... If it doesn't work, I'm sure, hopefully, he's not elected again for another term. I'm losing sleep watching the GOP enable and cover him. Because countries should come first, not their political allegiance to Trump. Absolutely not. I try not to follow politics too much, though I did vote for him. I just think it's the whole system, politics, businesses, it's all corrupt. It's hard to find honesty today. You know, I, I voted for Trump because I liked his attitude. I, I don't think necessarily he was the best president, but you, they don't give us many choices. I can't remember the last time that somebody voted for Trump and actually talked to me in an interview. This is refreshing. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not, I'm not ashamed of it at all. I don't have a bumper sticker on my car, and, you know, I don't usually tell people, but, you know. Last question. Do you care about the impeachment process? Well, I care because of the fact that it's costing a lot of money, and they could be focusing on better things. Schools, health care, you know. I know, they're just a waste of money on us. That's all I care about. Absolutely. It's part of our Constitution. If we let this slip away, we are at a point where the Constitution and democracy are nothing. And it's like purposely done to eliminate the checks and balances like the three different branches of government. He believes he doesn't need to account to anybody. And I'm sorry, you do. Yes, I do care. I think that it's important. I think that, you know, he should also face the same laws that we all face and he should do the right thing. If you're just sitting there on your couch watching ESPN or something and not caring about this, then what are you really doing? Watch sports, but also care about this is what you're saying. Correct. Yes. We got to live with it. You know, you've just got to find a way around it. I know it's disheartening, but I have ultimate faith in the human condition that somehow we will survive Trump and somehow we will get through this and be better for it. I, I hope every day that we'll be better for it. We'll learn our lessons. And maybe the most important question, what brings you to the store today? 
have to get toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> I just realized I need toilet paper, okay? I mean, like, not this minute, but I, I should go, go get some. And uh, that was Frankie Graziano from Connecticut Public Radio out of the Target in uh, New Britain, Connecticut, talking to Todd and Kathy Cheedy and Julie David and Santasha Joyner, Diana Masechik, Morgan from Waterbury, and Amulkar Rodriguez from New Britain. Thanks to all of you for talking to Frankie. One thing we believe here on Pardon Me is that the arts are a part of any conversation, any conversation about the future of this nation, this society. So we've got a state troubadour here in Connecticut. We always do. Right now it is a very talented young woman named Nikita Waller. So we asked her to come in the studio with our friends Al Anderson and Jim Chapdelaine and Paul and Lorne, the rest of the, the Shinolas, and to do a song of protest and a song of hope. And we should say that all of those people are going to be also, if you listen to the regular Colin McEnroe show, they're going to be on our show on Tuesday. That will be December 24th. All right. So here's Nikita Waller. Just like that river, I've been running ever since. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. Oh, yes it will. It's been too. Afraid to die Cause I don't know what's out there Beyond the skies It's been a long A long time coming But I know oh, A change gonna come Oh Yes, it will. Then I go to my brother. And I say, brother, help me, please. No. Keeps doing. Mm. Oh, he's knocking me, knocking me right on my knees. Oh, there's been times I tried to make it. I was afraid to go on. But somehow I know. I gotta carry on. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know oh, a change gonna come. Oh.
All right, that's this week's show. It's produced by Betsy Kaplan and Jonathan McNichol. Thanks this week to Gina Matruda and to Kion Wolf. And you can subscribe to our podcast wherever you get podcasts. And if you're so inclined, uh, you could even give us a rating or a review. So Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, whatever it is you're celebrating. Thanks for sharing some of that time with us. A change.